Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun in Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Lord God, as we open your word tonight and examine it, we pray that it would examine us too. And I pray, Lord, that as Paul said in his letter, that... um, I could preach your gospel tonight, not for the sake of eloquence or for wisdom, but for the sake of your cross, for the sake that you, Lord Jesus, would be lifted up and that we would be drawn to you and that we would know you and love you and walk in your ways. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Well, good evening. How is everyone? It's good to see all of you. Uh, We are still in the season after Epiphany, and we are still talking about Epiphany-like things. You might have noticed in the colic for today, the mention of light. Again, in the gospel passage, the mention of light, this idea that light is breaking into the world. And last week, Jay talked about our mission statement, which is behold and become in light of Jesus' call to his disciples and that the path of discipleship is the path of beholding and becoming, that we come to see Jesus and in seeing Jesus, we come to be transformed into more and more into his image. But this idea of light is so deeply connected with the idea of seeing. To see anything, you need light. If you're in a dark room, the only way to see anything is is for your eyes to pull in the light that is in that room. For us to behold, there must first be a light. So behold and become is the path of discipleship. But I want to look at this other passage, this other story of Jesus calling his disciples and look at it from a slightly different angle. And look at it from the perspective of Jesus. And looking at Jesus as the one who beholds us. So prior to us beholding him, he beholds us. We're the ones in darkness. We're the ones who need his light to shine. And that's what Matthew wants to show us in these verses. That Jesus is the light that comes to unexpected people in unexpected places. So this is a story that shows us how Jesus beholds us. And the way that Jesus beholds us is that first he seeks us. So in this passage, what's going on, this is the beginning of Jesus's ministry. He's just come out of the wilderness after his great temptations, and he's found out that his brother or his cousin John has been arrested. And in light of that news, he withdraws to an unexpected place, not moving deeper into the seat of power, but out to the the hinterlands of Israel. And Matthew says, hey, that's exactly what's supposed to happen. 
because that's what was prophesied, that this is where Jesus was supposed to go. And Matthew quotes from the prophet Isaiah, and he says, in the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, that's where the light was gonna go. And why did the light go there? Because the people who dwell there dwell in darkness, but no longer, because now they have seen a great light. And that word for dwelling, we could also translate literally more sitting. It's a much more stagnant, static image. They're sitting in darkness. They don't know what to do. They can't move. They can't do anything. They have to have light to do anything at all, to move forward. So this prophecy tells us that Jesus is light that goes into darkness. He is light that seeks out the dark places. It's an unusual place because it's not the seat of power. It's an unusual set of tribes, not Judah and Benjamin where kings come from, but Zebulun and Naphtali. Still part of the 12 tribes of Israel, but more obscure, the place where exile came first. And that's an unusual place for the Messiah to go. But Matthew says, no, that's exactly where he was supposed to go because that's what Isaiah said. This is who the Messiah is. He's the one who seeks. And just on a more historical level, it's unusual that a rabbi like Jesus would go out and seek disciples for himself. It's usually the other way around, that disciples would hear about a great teacher and go seek him out. That's how every kung fu movie in the 70s works, right? You go up the mountain to find the guru to learn the stuff. But Jesus comes down from the mountain to seek out his disciples. Again, that is unusual, but it shows us that Jesus is the one who seeks us first. And this desire to be sought is deep within us. The psychologist, Christian psychologist, Kurt Thompson, in his book, The Soul of Shame, has this great phrase. He says that we come into the world looking for someone, looking for us. That a baby comes into the world and is looking for someone who's looking for them. That's true of us spiritually too. We are looking for someone who is looking for us. And Matthew is saying, Jesus is the one who seeks us. He is the one who beholds us, so he seeks us. He comes after us. And this is a story of Jesus seeking out his own. Seeking out his own, seeing them, calling them, and equipping them to be his disciples, to follow after him. So the first thing we see about Jesus beholding us is that he seeks us. We want to be sought out, and not only that, we want to be seen. And that's what we see Jesus doing next, that Jesus beholds us by literally beholding us, by seeing us. If you look at verse 18, it says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. And again, verse 21 And going on from there, he saw two other brothers. So he seeks and then he sees. And Jesus is seeing, I want you to imagine that Jesus sees like a poet sees. A poet, a good poet, sees with depth and with concrete clarity. A good poet has a singular image and describes it in such a way that you can sense it, you can see it yourself or you can smell it. And that that concrete detail takes on greater meaning. But first you have to see it for what it is. 
to see to its depth, to see it in all its concrete reality. And this is what, he, what Jesus does. He sees these disciples, and he sees them doing what they do. They're fishing. And he's going to speak into that exact reality because he sees to the very depth of what it is. He sees like a poet sees. He sees these fishermen. He sees their net, nets. And then Jesus imagines what they might do. What might they do with nets? What if I gave them a different kind of net? What might they catch then? He sees to the depths of things. He sees the beauty and the dignity of their work. And then he tells them that there's more. He sees to the depth of who they are. And before he says anything to them, he sees them. And we desire to be sought and we desire to be seen. This is all over our psalm for tonight, Psalm 139. Our psalm tells us that it is the very nature of God to seek us and the very nature of God to see us. That this is a God who is acquainted with all our ways, a God who sees to the depths of things, and as the psalmist so beautifully puts it, even to the secret depths, even to the, the darkness of the mother's womb where he, he knits us together, Our God is a God who seeks. Our God is a God who sees. And Jesus is one who seeks and sees. And then Jesus beholds these disciples. He beholds us by calling. He seeks, he sees, he calls. After he sees to the depths of us and then speaks to the depths, he speaks then to the depths of us. And he calls out and he says what? Follow me. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He speaks a message of hope to these fishermen in a language that they understand because he has sought them, because he has seen them. And his call is, follow me. So before it is anything else, it's a path to walk. That this invitation is a path to walk. It's an invitation to literally go wherever the person who invites you to come goes. That's what Jesus means. I'm going over here. Do you want to come with me? Do you want to walk the path that I'm walking? Do you want to go where I'm going? And Jesus will deepen this throughout his ministry. And he says, take up your cross and follow me because that's what Jesus is doing. His disciples learn to do what Jesus does by following him. So Jesus seeks us. He sees us. He calls us. And then the last way that Jesus beholds us is that he remakes us. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will make something of you. I will take what you are and I will make it something even greater. It looks like what it was. It's still fishing, but it's it's transposed to a higher key. I will make you, I will re- make you. Follow me, and I will make you. I already said that Jesus sees like a poet, and this word for making is the literal root word for poetry, poesis. I will poetry you, basically. I will make something beautiful of you. Follow me, and I will make you. Jesus In the same way that he speaks to these fishermen and says, I'll make you fishers of men, 
He says to us, I see into the concrete reality of your lives. I see the situations and circumstances you're in. I see the relationships that you have. I see the struggles that you have. I see where you work. I see what you long for. I see all of it. And I'm speaking into that and I'm saying, follow me. And when you follow me, I will take all of that and I'll make it something else. I will raise it up. Theologians would say, that what is happening here is that grace is perfecting nature. Not making something totally different, but taking what is and raising it up. You were fishermen, I'm gonna make you fishers of men. And I want you to think about that phrase. I want you to take that phrase with you of Jesus speaking into your concrete reality, your circumstances. Jesus seeing your life like a poet sees and saying to you, follow me and I will make you blank. What goes in the blank for you? Follow me and I will make you what? I can take a fisherman and I can make them fishers of men. I can take you and I can make you. What will Jesus make of your life if you would follow him? So in this, in this story, we have Jesus seeking. We have Jesus seeing, we have Jesus calling we have Jesus inviting these first disciples to be remade. And that leaves us the question, which is, how are we invited to respond once Jesus calls? We see how these disciples, these first disciples, call, uh, respond. They throw away their nets, and they leave it all behind, and they follow him. In the case of James and John, they leave their nets behind, they leave their father behind, they leave everything that they've known behind, and they follow. And I want you to keep that in your mind as the picture of exactly what Jesus said first in this passage, which is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want you to think of repentance as what those disciples did, turning away from something, even something good, to go after something better. Repentance is spiritual physics. To go after one thing in one direction means you're not going after this other thing in this direction. To follow Jesus means you're turning away from something else. That's what repentance is at its heart, and that's Jesus's preach, it's the heart of his preaching, repent, repent, repent. Not to hear necessarily first in a woe is me sort of way, but is the opportunity to go after something even better. They were fishing, they were doing good work, they had dignity. We would call them small business owners, these fishermen, <laughs> right? That's the American dream, own your own business. They leave it behind, not because that was bad, but because there was something better. That's repentance. The face of repentance is to turn away from one thing so that you can go after something even better. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into as well. Or to put it in other terms, repentance is responding to the light, to turn away from darkness and towards the light that is coming into the, the world. And this is where something else happens. Because when we turn to the light, we begin to see ourselves in that light. And that's where this work of transformation, this work of sanctification begins to happen is that when we see ourselves in the light of Christ, we come to see that 
it doesn't all add up. So on one level, repentance is so much more than a change of behavior. Um, it's a change of our being, right? And we tend to think as church people that repentance is just changing our behavior. It's a change of our being. Um, one commentator that I was reading says that to repent is a change of vision, a change of home, a change of lover. To change your vision, to change what you see, to change your home, to change where you live, and to change your lover, meaning who you give your deepest self your greatest affection to, that's repentance. Walking the path of light is walking the path of repentance. Walking the path that Jesus lays before us and invites us to follow him on is the path of repentance because it's a path of walking in the light where we come to see ourselves more and more in light of who he is. It's a new year, so my uh, C.S. Lewis illustration quota has reset. So I'm going to use one right now. We get a certain number every year. And I'm going to use one in January. It's bold because it's too good not to talk about. C.S. Lewis's novel, Till We Have Faces, is the retelling of the story, the myth of Cupid and Psyche. And if you're familiar more with Narnia and the Space Trilogy, this is a very, very different book. It's a very different book. It is my favorite of his novels. It is a beautiful, very haunting, deep, deep book. And in the story, in the retelling of the novel, it's narrated by this, the sister of Psyche. Psyche is this beautiful, beautiful girl who everybody thinks is a goddess. She's so beautiful. And the sister, and I looked up three different ways to pronounce her name, so I'm just going to go with one. It's kind of a hard name. Or Ual, that's her name. I'm not going to say it again. That's your one chance at it. She is ugly. And her sister is beautiful. And she has this jealous, possessive love of her sister. And she will do anything to cling to the love of her sister. And what happens is this, in the story is that there's this godly beast, god figure on the mountain, the mountain brute, who demands a sacrifice. And Psyche is given to the mountain god. And the sister is so convinced that her sister has been torn to pieces by this mountain god that she goes up to see her, and it turns out that she's fallen in love with the mountain god. But the sister can't believe that her sister has found happiness, and she convinces her to do something to betray the confidence of Cupid, the god. And an epiphany happens, a literal epiphany. A god shows up. The mountain god shows up in all his glory, all his light, all his radiant beauty. And it's a deeply affecting chapter that's worth meditating on. But what happens in the story is that Arual sees her life entirely differently in light of the beauty and the radiant glory of the mountain god. The first thing that she sees is that in light and in comparison to the beauty of that god, her sister is by comparison ugly. That true beauty is no match for the beauty of her sister. And in the radiant light of that God, she comes to see that her love for her sister is something more like hate. That that jealous, possessive love that she's had for her sister, that's not love at all. But she doesn't know that until she sees what true light 
looks like. She doesn't know that until she sees what true love looks like. And if Jesus is the light that comes into our darkness, part of what happens is that we come to see ourselves in that light. And that's the call to repentance. Not the change of of behavior so that we can wash ourselves to make ourselves good enough, we can't. But to respond to the one who is light, to respond to the one who is beauty. To come to see ourselves in the light of Christ is an invitation to see ourselves truly and the brighter the light, the deeper the shadows. The brighter the light, the darker the shadow that you see. And this is the light of the world. And we come to see our shadow and light of who he is. And what Jesus offers us is repent. The opportunity to turn away from that and to follow after him to become something else. To see ourselves in light of Christ is an invitation to see ourselves truly. It's an invitation to repent. And that can be the only true response. When he says, follow me, we have to leave something to do that. That's an act of repentance. When we look at him and see that he is the radiant God of light and love, that we come to see that the light in ourselves is something more like darkness. We come to see that the love in ourselves is something more like hate in comparison to the light and the love that he brings. So Jesus is one who beholds us. He beholds us by seeking us. He beholds us by seeing us. He beholds us by calling us. He beholds us by inviting us to be remade into his image. I want to go back to the psalm. In this psalm, the psalmist is meditating on the pervasive presence of God. I can't go anywhere from that presence. I can't say something without you knowing. I can't go to the depths of the earth. I can't go to the heights of the mountains. You're there. This is too wonderful for me, is what he concludes. But the last two verses of the psalm are worth meditating on. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's not in your bulletin there. We cut the psalm off. You'll you'll have to go home and, and look in your own Bibles and make sure I'm not making these verses up. They're in there. Search me, O God, and know my heart. How can we respond when we know that this God is seeking us, that this God sees us, that this God calls us, that he invites us to be remade? I think the psalmist's response is as good as any. Search me. Search to the depths of me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. He's not saying that God already hasn't done that. He's inviting God to speak into him and to show him those things. Why? Why does he want to be shown the grievous way within him? Because in light of what he knows about God, he knows that there's a gap. He knows that he's fallen short. This is not about self-hatred. This is just about reality. (laughs) When you come into contact with true beauty, you see your ugliness. When you come into contact with true love, your love looks like hatred in comparison to that. And the psalmist knows that. I'd invite you to take this psalm this week and meditate on it. The full full meal deal in your Bibles, or you can take these verses. 
but this reality that there is a God to whom darkness is not dark to. Darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are both alike to you. This God that sees us and seeks us can see to the very depths of things. There's nothing hidden from his gaze. I invite you to meditate on this psalm. And I invite you to make these last verses your own prayer because they are a prayer of repentance. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In Luke's version of this call of the disciples, Jesus goes on the boat and he catches all these fish. And what does Peter do? He falls down and says, woe is me. (laughs) That's what we're talking about. He sees something so much greater than he could possibly imagine. And he has to respond. And that response is the call to repentance. Not to mere behavior change, but to submit ourselves to the one who can remake us. So I'd leave you with that question. If Jesus came to you and said, follow me and I will make blank. That's what you need to meditate on. What is Jesus saying into that? I will make and remake of you this. I will take your circumstances, your life, where you work, the people you know, the pain, the darkness, all of that. I will take that and I will make something of it and I will remake something of it. Follow me and I will make. How's Jesus going to fill the blank? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we do not seek ourselves in vain. We do not seek you in vain because you are first seeking us. Lord, we thank you that it is not in vain that we long to find a face that is looking for us because you are the one who is looking for us. So Lord, I ask that you would stir in our hearts and that we would feel even anew or for the first time your call to us, the call to follow you, the call to be remade in your image. Help us, Lord, to see our shadows in light of your light, not as an invitation to self-hatred or shame, but as an invitation to be remade in your image. We pray this in your glorious and beautiful name. You, Lord Jesus, who are the light of the world. Amen.